uh, looking at our final judge, actually, Samson. Now we're going to conclude this three-week look at this particular era in Israel's history. And honestly, as we look at this story, we look at this character, we're not really quite sure which way to go with this guy. We're not sure what to make of this story. We're not sure who this Samson guy really is. I mean, for sure he's quite a character, right? Let me ask you something. Over the last couple of weeks, and maybe as you've read this before, when you look at the story of Samson, what do you see? Do you see a strong man or a weak man? Do you see a faithful man, faithful judge, or do you see a failure? Do you see someone who's proud or someone who is humble? When you look at the story of Samson, what do you see? Well, let's look at it together as it comes to a conclusion. Judges 16, 1 through 31. Grab your Bibles. It's going to be on the screen. Follow along with me. Judges chapter 16, 1 through 31, the story of Samson and Delilah. Verse 1 of chapter 16, Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. And the Gazites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, let us wait till the light of the morning. And then we will kill him. But Samson lay until midnight, and at midnight he arose, took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts, and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders, and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him, and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies, and how you might be bound, that one could subdue you. And Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought her up seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Verse 10, then Delilah said to Samson, behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you may be bound. And he said to her, if they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to them, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in the inner chamber. 
but he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. And then Delilah said to Samson, until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you may be bound. And he said to her, if you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into a web. And she made them tight with the pin and said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pin, the loom. And the web. And she said to him, How can you say, I love you, when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, he sent and called the Lord of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees And she called the man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. And then she began to torment him. And his strength left him. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistine seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to rejoice. And they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they called and they said, Call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars, and Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, and on the roof there were 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, Please remember me, and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And then he bowed with all of his strength, and the house Fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. 
And so the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried buried him between Zorah and Ashtaol in the tomb of Manoah his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. This is the word of God. And all God's people said, Amen. And for properly pronouncing the word buried, Jeremy said, Amen. He makes fun of me that I always say buried instead of buried. When I hear buried, I think of pie. Anyway, that's just me. He's right, by the way. He's right. So if you hear me say buried, correct me, okay? It's buried. Anyway, when you look at the story of Samson, what do you see? What do you see? Well, for sure, you see a man of unique physical strength, right? If you just read the story, the the chapters that account for his life, his judging, and then his death, for sure you can say, yeah, this is a man of unique physical strength. I mean, he ripped apart a lion with his bare hands, and he went beast mode on a thousand Philistines in chapter 15 with the jawbone of a donkey. He's strong. And if that wasn't enough, you see what happens in the opening verses of chapter 16, right? He's, uh, the Philistines hear that he's at Gaza, and they say, ah, we're going to set an ambush for him. We got him. We've surrounded him. He's on the other side of the gate, and we're going to surround it. We're going to kill him. But somehow Samson finds out, and he goes down, and what does he do? Again, understand this. The gate of the city was anchored. It was heavy. It was strong. It provided fortification to protect the people from outsiders. So this is no chicken wire gate, right? This is iron. This is heavy. This is steel. This is massively big. And what does he do? He goes down at midnight, and he grabs the gate by the post. He rips it out of the ground, throws it on top of his shoulders, and then runs with it all the way to the hill of Hebron, which is 40 miles away. That's like running from here to Utica with hundreds of pounds on your shoulders. Raise your hand if you think you can do that. Tom just raised his hand. I knew that was coming. Tom, you can't do that. Maybe a, maybe a bag of mail, but not the iron gate at Gaza, right? This is a man of unique physical strength. And yet, the dude has a weakness, Women. Women. Right? Chapter 16, verse 1. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. He has a weakness. Women. Not just any women, but foreign women. Right? You look at this woman uh, called Delilah. And you wonder, like, who is this woman? Well, her name is, the meaning of her name is a little bit obscure. Uh, It can mean flirtatious, fitting. It could mean of the night, also fitting. But what's less obscure is where she's from. She's from the Valley of Sorek, the northern part of the Philistines. She's a Philistine woman that he has given himself to and has fallen in love with. So Samson, 
has a weakness. It's women, foreign women. He has a weakness. He's led by his eyes, right? He likes what he sees, and what he sees is a beautiful woman. And regardless of God's law, irregardless of God's law, he pursues them and, 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 and commits sexual sins. So he has a weakness. It's not the first time that we see this. Surely this, as we see, becomes the last time. But nonetheless, the Philistines know about this weakness, and so what do they do? They want to take advantage of him in his weakest moment. And so they go to Delilah, and they say, seduce him. Find out where his great strength lies. Really what they're saying to him, and that word seduce, is deceive him. Deceive him. Lie with him and lie to him. And try to uncover his secret, the secret of his strength. And so to get her to do this, what do they do? They offer her 1,100 shekels of silver each. Historians say there are five lords of the Philistines probably. So what you see here is most likely 5,500 shekels of silver. How much is that? It's a ton. It's a ton of money. It's mega millions kind of money. It's life changing. Hey, you never know kind of money. That's how much money it is. It's the kind of money that says she will never have to worry about anything else and she can enjoy the luxuries of the Philistines for rest, the rest of her days. This is big time cash. And so they offer it. Why? Because Samson has become such a nuisance to the Philistines that they're desperate. They're willing to do anything it takes to uncover the source of his strength and defeat him. And so Delilah agrees and Samson, unknowingly, knowing what's going on, uh, they enter into somewhat of a lover's game, right? It's somewhat entertaining for us even as we read it. Like, oh, look at the silliness of it. Look at the fun that's going on. This is, this is, and, and Samson is, is playing a game uh, with her. And so she goes to him and she says, tell me where your great strength lies so that someone could bind you and subdue you. At least she's honest and direct, right? I mean, hey, how can we defeat you? I mean, give her one thing, the credit that she's just direct and honest, right? Maybe she figures that's the best way to get to a guy like Samson. To just say, just shoot straight with him. I don't know. Hey, tell me, how can we tie you and then defeat you? And so they enter into this uh, game. And so the first one, seven through nine, is if they bind me with seven bowstrings, then I'll become like any other man. Verses 10 through 12, if they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I'll become weak and just like any other man. Then 13 and 14, if they weave seven locks of my head with a web, fasten it tight with a pin, then I'll become weak just like any other man. All three attempts were just uh, Samson messing around and playing a game. Very casual and uh, fun and flirtatious himself with this game with Delilah. But Delilah's getting frustrated. Delilah's getting uh, uh, impatient and uneasy. She doesn't want to play the game anymore, right? And so she goes to him and says, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? How can you say I love you? So obviously Samson has told her that he loves her. But the way that he's treating her 
at least in this particular circumstance, goes to show, at least in her mind, that he does not. She's tapped into something that we all know and understand, no matter what relationship that we're in. We can say we love someone with our words, but if it's not backed up with what? Our actions, it really doesn't settle. It doesn't seem real. And so Delilah, who clearly doesn't love Samson, but nonetheless is using a truth to manipulate a particular action from him, goes for the jugular here. How can you say you love me when your heart is not with me? Right? The, the scriptures shown throughout Israel's history that this was the very expectation of the Lord on Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 6, right? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, right? The heart, all of it, was meant to be devoted fully and totally to the Lord. It was never to, to have competition, the hearts of the people of God. The Lord had called his people and had called Samson with this vow and setting him apart in the people of God to have an, a, a singular devotion and heartfelt love to the Lord. And what Delilah is asking of him is you give that to me. You give your heart to me. You tell me you love me. Well, you should give me your heart. You should lay your soul bare. You should show your devotion for me by revealing this secret. And so Delilah is asking for Samson's heart, his devotion. It's not just about his hair, as we're going to see. This is a matter of Samson's heart and to who uh, it is given to. And so we see, wearied by her persistence, Samson gives his heart to Delilah. He gives his heart to her. The, verse 15 and 17 says, he told her all his heart. Verses 18 through 22, right? When, De, when Delilah saw that he had told her all of his heart, that if any razor had come to my head, being a Nazarite, then surely I would lose my strength. So she calls the Philistines. Why? Because she sees and knows now that Samson had opened his heart and given it to her, the Philistine woman. So they, she has him sleep on her lap. They bring in the guy, they shave his head. And then she yells out what she's been yelling out before. Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And immediately we see uh, the shock of Samson because he's assuming that his strength will be with him, right? Look at what it says. He said he awoke from his sleep, verse 20, and he said, I will go out as other times and shake myself free. Not only is Samson a lustful man, led by his eyes, but he's a prideful man, for he assumes that his strength is in and of himself. I will go out as other times, even though I've given my heart to another and turned away from Yahweh, even though I've given my heart to another, I still will shake myself free. I still have in and of myself the power to defeat God, these enemies of mine. 
I will shake myself free. We hear nothing of the Lord will deliver me. We hear nothing. The Lord is my strength. It's not in my hair. It's my strength is in the Lord. We hear nothing of that. He assumes that his strength is there and in and of himself. But right away we're confronted with this fact that God's grace, God's provision, God's strength that is given is not something that we can presume or take for granted. No, it's a gift to be stewarded. And Samson does not steward it well. He mismanages it. And in the end, he tries to rise up again in all of his strength, and it's gone, it's lost. And the irony of the story is that not only has he lost his strength, but he has lost his eyes, the very thing that he was led by that led him into sin. He lost it. He was cursed. He was blinded. He was enslaved. And he was made to work in the mill, and he was put in prison. He'd lost the source of his strength, He'd even lost the source of his sin that led him down that road with prostitutes and falling in love with a Philistine woman. He lost his eyes. You see, when we look at Samson, what do we see? We see a man of unique strength, yes, but who fell under the weight of common sins. Yes, The cat ran to Hebron with a lot of weight on his back. But he struggles with sins that all of us have struggled with in some way, shape, or form. The lust of the eyes, the pride of life, and really he struggles with the common sin of the day, giving his heart over to someone else other than God. He struggles with idolatry. Samson is a man of unique physical strength. But he's also a man that fell under the weight of common sins. He could not defeat that. He could not fight that. It crushed him. It cursed him. And it enslaved him. And we look at this story and we wonder, why why does the author of Judges put this here? Like, why is he... Uh, revealing this to the people of Israel then? Like, what is going on as this whole section in Judges comes to a conclusion? Why is it important to the author that the generations that followed read this? Because ultimately, this is not a story simply about Samson. That as the Israelite read this story, it became for them a mirror. In which they saw themselves. In which they saw the people of Israel, right? When we look at the story of Samson, that's what we see. We see Israel. Dal Ralph Davis says this, Samson is a paradigm of Israel. One raised up out of nothing. Richly gifted. Who panders around with other loves. And yet apparently always expects to have Yahweh. He goes on to say, Israel was meant to see in Samson the pattern of her own unfaithfulness. Is this a stretch? 
What is the current state of Israel at this point in the book of Judges? Really, what is the state of Israel repeatedly throughout redemptive history? Led away by their lusts, their eyes, what they see. Rather than the promise they hear from God, they are led by what they see, and they're lured into the surrounding customs and cultures of the people of the day. They're stuck and bound under the oppression in their idolatry. They're humiliated by those around them, oppressed, enslaved, shackled, and they're living cursed under God's consequences of their unfaithfulness and disobedience. This is a mirror. For Israel. But if we continue to look at it even closer, if we stare at it more, that it's not just a mirror for the nation of Israel, that it becomes, as one scholar said, a mirror of our fickle state. Right? You get to see in dramatic fashion your struggle. As I read this, I was confronted with my sins. My wrestling with the flesh, my pride, right? As, as we read this, it's easy to point the finger at Samson. It's easy uh, thousands of years later to look at it and go, man, those people could never figure it out. But truth be told, if we read the story well, and we stare at it, and we look at it, and we make observations, they become insights for us into our very own nature, apart from Christ. And even those in Christ still fighting and wrestling and battling these sins. That we also are easily lured away by what we see. We're consumed in this visual age with what we see. We can't take our eyes off of things to think for once, to remember and reflect for once on God's promises. We have assurance and confidence in what is right in front of us today. And that's it. We are visually stimulated and pleased by what the world would offer us. If you want to get real specific, men and women alike are visually stimulated by one another. That we are led away into sexual sins often. Just the pornography statistics alone will wake us all up to the fact that we are a people led by our eyes. And it's not just men. It's both men and women. That we believe and entrust ourselves to what we see, and we deal casually with sin, and if it's not just sexuality, it's possessions. Man, I want that. I see that and I want that. In this society, we're led by those things. Man, you know, every once in a while, like th every three seconds in a day, it seems like I get a notification across my, uh, my, my computer screen about some uh, offer from Marriott or some offer from Disney, you know, because I was stupid and did all those things in the past and then sign up for an email. Like all these notifications come through. Like I'm in the middle of studying or, or praying or thinking. And all of a sudden, ping. 
and then I'm gone. What happened? That's a silly example of what happens to us in our walk with God. That we're pursuing Him, and then something catches our eye, distracts our attention, and then all of a sudden we've been lured away by our lusts because we love that. It promises us short-term satisfaction, and we buy in. Our eyes lead us astray. We can see so much and be so blind, can't we? And as the people of God, we are warned here today, may this not be so. May we be led by not what we see, by the promise of God that we've heard. May we be led by the Word, the Scriptures. May we trust in what we don't see rather than what we see. Isn't that the nature of biblical faith? Trusting in what we don't see based on a word that we hear from God? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The evidence of what? Things unseen. That's faith. And we're called, as Hebrews 11 goes into Hebrews 12, to fix our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. There's a wrong use and a right use of our eyes. Our eyes should not lead us, lest those eyes are fixated on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Where is the attention of your eyes today? Be honest with yourself. What is luring you away from fixation on Jesus? What temporal blessings of this world are are more exciting and satisfying than Jesus. Trust in Him. Turn to Him. We can also become casual with our distinct calling. You see the way that He handles His strength and understands His calling. He's very casual. He's willing to compromise it. He's not taking it very seriously. He doesn't really embrace his identity and calling as the judge of Israel to serve the people of God. He's always serving himself. And he's playing games with his strength and his calling. Is that unlike us at times? We have a very distinct calling and identity as the people of God in the church. As a saved people, we are now his children, his his citizens of his kingdom. We are called ones. We are sent ones. We are missionaries in this world. So easy, we we just deal with that casually. We don't take it seriously and passionately. We're about doing other things with our gifts and strengths and abilities for our own temporal joy and glory rather than what God has for us in this life. I'm telling you, it is so easy For me to be casual about the calling that I have. I don't know about you. That I can easily get satisfied with minimal status quo attempts at faithfulness. Rather than approaching my calling and my identity with an all in mentality. I'm not alert. I'm not watchful. I'm not ready when temptation comes. Some of you may understand exactly what I'm talking about this morning. We treat our calling and identity like it's funny or it's a joke or a game. May this not be so. May we steward all that God has given us and done for us to pursue Him 
and to know him and to make him known in our families, in our workplaces, in our communities. This is our distinct identity and calling. Let's pursue that with all that we have. We can also become proud of our God-given strengths, can't we? We can assume that it's in us, that we have something in and of ourselves. Even as we approach spiritual gifts in the church, it can easily become less about what God wants to do through me in the lives of other people, and it can easily become about what I'm going to do for my own platform or my own glory, my own purposes. It can easily become this thing that we love. We love our gift more than we even love the giver. It can be all about our contribution and the way that God has wired us and our strengths. I'm trying to live into my strengths. Give me a break. Live into his strength. Even boast in your weakness, right, is what the scriptures talk about. It can be easy for us to say, I don't need God. I don't need his word. I can figure it all out on my own. I don't need to pray except for at dinner so my kids think that I pray a lot. Or when something's really gone wrong. My son asked me last night, Dad, why do people only pray when things go wrong? I thought, Bro, it's bedtime. We're going to have to talk about this some other day. Anyway. That's what we do. We can easily conclude, I can handle this on my own. I don't need biblical community. The preaching of God's word in Sunday worship is not necessary and good for me. And I can, it's a negotiable part of my life if something else isn't going on. It's easy for us to be proud in our self-sufficiency. I'm saying this because I know my own weaknesses and sin. I don't mean to come harsh on you. It becomes a mirror for all of us here. Understand? At last, at the end of the day, we can give our hearts to idols, betraying the very God who has loved us, who has given his heart and soul to us. Right? This is us. The counterfeit gods that we worship, that the world has put on display for us, it is easy for us to be lured into those things. We can uh, read that verse and wonder, is that directly for me? As Delilah asked Samson, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? Some of you here today are in a season where you're saying with your mouth, I love God. But with your heart, it's anything but that. Your heart is far. Isn't that what Jesus said? These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is what? Far from me. And in other words, he says it to his disciples, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Right? Love, heart, actions. Actions. Despite all these very real sins that we see in Samson, we see in Israel, we see in ourselves, this story is not a story, and we are not a people without hope. I love And I'm sad at the same time about the way this story concludes. And it's not just that we look at the story and we see this strong yet tragically weak man, this weak, uh, unfaithful nation, these struggles that we have as sinners. No. When we look at the story of Samson, we see hope for our salvation. 
And that's how I'm going to end this out. When you read how this concludes, you're reminded of something else. There's, there's some other story that keeps coming to your mind. And if it's not, I'm, I hope I can bring it to your mind uh, today. So the lords of the Philistines gather to offer this great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, right? So we see this isn't really about Samson and Delilah at the end of the day. It's not even necessarily the Philistines versus the Israelites. No, this conflict is about Dagon and the Lord. This becomes a conflict of the gods, if you will. So they celebrate Dagon. Look, what da- look at what Dagon has done. Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into his hand. And they begin to celebrate. They throw a feast. Yay, we won. Our God gave our enemies into our hand. We've heard that throughout the whole book of Judges as the the conclusion of every one of these judges. That the Lord, despite their unfaithfulness and their inadequacies, the Lord had given the enemies of Israel into their hands. But now, what a tragic end and twist that now Dagon has given uh, the, the, the Philistines' enemies into their hands? Dagon wins at the end of Judges? No. We see this amazing ending that really is about the vindication of God's name in the world. This is about Yahweh. This is about the Lord carrying out His purposes to bring about His glory in the world. And so they call Samson out, laughing and enjoying this and celebrating, and they want Samson to entertain them. So the servant of the Lord is mocked. The servant of the Lord is bound. The servant of the Lord becomes entertainment for the crowds that pass by who gather for a feast and a celebration in their nation. Remind you of anything? Samson cries out to the Lord, finally. Finally, Samson turns to the Lord. In this moment, he must recognize the true source of his strength. He cries out to the Lord. He calls him Sovereign Lord. He recognizes that the Lord is in control even now. In the source of his strength, he cries out, Strengthen me this last once. Let me die with the Philistines. When you look at the story of Samson, what are you seeing? Are you seeing the hope of your salvation? Is this story reminding you of another story? Where the servant of the Lord is mocked, beaten, seemingly cursed, put on display to be be, uh, jeered at, laughed at, beaten, arms stretched out. Yes, Samson's holding the posts we see. When you look at Samson, what do you see? A tragic ending where he dies? No. We see Jesus. That's what we see. We see the hope of our salvation. That it was Jesus Christ who this passage points to. This this event foreshadows, yes, this is what Israel needs. This is what the people of God need. A leader who lays down his life 
at the hands of sinful men, who executes the Lord's justice, who vindicates the Lord's name, who brings about the Lord's glory in such a way to defeat their enemies and to save his people. That's what Jesus Christ did on the cross, willingly gave himself. Yes, here's the wonderful news. Jesus' death was a perfect one, a perfect substitute, a perfect offering of a perfect man, a perfect faithful life of obedience, whose heart was totally devoted to the Father, who never wavered to the left or to the right, but gave himself up to bring about the vindication of God's glory and name in the world. Do you see Jesus, do you see your salvation being secured in Christ as you read Samson? If not, I wonder if your eyes are gouged out. I wonder if you don't see the story at all. I wonder if you're truly blind. Because this is not simply about a sad day for Israel where 3,000 people died. Yay, at least we got that win. This is about pointing forward to the ultimate victory that God secured in Jesus Christ. It's in that event that we did not see personally that we look back on and place our faith, hope, and trust in. Where all of our hope comes from for salvation. Do you see that? Do you see your Savior? Echoes of that in it. Uh, Subtleties, yes, but nonetheless, clear parallels that point us to Jesus Christ. So if you're here today and you're struggling with lust, you're struggling with pride, you're wrestling with the false idols of culture, know this, that Jesus died in your place to deliver you from all of that. And that you can repent and turn to Him and be saved. To receive hope in what seems to be the most hopeless of moments for the nation of Israel and for us as we come face to face with our sin. See Jesus. Trust Jesus. Be led by Jesus only. Give your heart today and every day only to Jesus Christ and you will know salvation and His glory and His love. When you look at Samson, what do you see? I see the hope of our salvation. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, you never cease to amaze us. You confound our wisdom. You work your strength in the midst of our weakness. You bring about your glory through shame. You give life through death. When we had no strength and no capacity and no ability, no good or merit or righteousness in and of ourselves, We had rejected you and shaken our fist at you. You saved us. Through the death of Christ. For our sins. 
for the glory of your name. There is no one like you among the gods. You defeated Dagon. You defeat every god that we make and worship. Blessed be the Father, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Thank you. And even in these moments in history, we read that we're brought to Christ face to face, to worship, to love, to obey. Grant us that strength, Lord. Grant us the faith required to give ourselves to that which we do not see. Place our faith and hope knowing that one day we will see face to face Jesus. All God's people said, Amen.